Well, I want to ask you something as we begin this morning. Good morning. I'm Kenny. If you're visiting this morning, I'm so glad you're here. This is a great day to be here at Grace. Uh, I hope you come back tonight for, the, for our time of congregational singing uh, and, and retelling again the Christmas story. We never get enough of it. Um, but as we start, I want, you, I want you to think of one experience that you've had in your life uh, that exceeded your expectations. Some experience that you were anticipating, and then it happened, and it was even better than you thought it was. Maybe it was traveling somewhere like Randall's going to the North Shore of Hawaii. Did it exceed your expectations? Okay. Um, maybe you went somewhere, like Grand Canyon or something, and you're just like, this is even more beautiful than I imagined. Um, maybe it was a site like the Eiffel Tower or, or Hoover Dam or something, and, and you'd seen pictures of it, but you get there, and it was just, it kind of blew you away. I was thinking maybe an event has done that, like a, a concert or a musical. I've seen some of you out there have somehow magically gotten tickets to Hamilton and you gone and then you gush about it online. It just blew your mind. Maybe it's a Hanson Christmas concert uh, in LA. Anyone relate? Ha anyone? Okay, yeah. Was it better than you thought? It exceeded all expectations, of course. No, it actually didn't because Raylan was expecting it was going to be as awesome as it was. Um, I was thinking about expectations being exceeded, and one came to mind. I've had lots of moments like this I can think of, but one was going to Alaska in the early years of being married. Betsy and I, we had no kids. Eric and Donna had no kids, and we got some of our family and friends to all go on a tour, two-week tour up in Alaska. And part of that time was going to Denali National Park and going and seeing Denali, Mount McKinley, which is the tallest. You know, I got a picture here just to show you. I didn't take this picture. This is, uh, this is Denali. Uh, is that there? I'll let. There it is. Oh, oh, hold on. Go back. That's it right there. Denali. 20,310 feet tall at its peak, the biggest in North America. And as we were getting ready to go to Alaska, I was reading books about Alaska and about the, the gold rush and all kinds of stuff. I was watching documentaries about people who climbed Denali or died trying to climb Denali. I mean, Alaska is a crazy place and Denali is amazing. And so the day that we were finally driving to go to where we were staying near the national park, our tour bus driver who knew everything it seemed like about Alaska, he pulled us over at this one pullout and, and everyone got off the bus and everyone took the obligatory picture right here with Denali in the background on a beautiful rare day when there was no clouds and you could see the whole peak, which he told us doesn't often happen. So there we were. And I remember thinking, this is the biggest mountain I've ever seen in person with my eyes. And then we got on the bus and he told us how far away we still were for, from it. And that blew my categories because I already thought it looked big. So the next day, we're back uh, in the National Park, and in our group, we all got to choose excursions. My wife, uh, who was teaching elementary school at the time and, and, and taught on the Iditarod, she chose to go and pet huskies in a kennel, and that's cute. Eric and Don and I decided we got one day we're going to go hike in Denali National Park. Yeah, teach his own. She loved her. She was happy with her choice. Don't worry about it. We hiked in National Park. And if you go to Denali, you get on a bus and it drives you into the middle of the park and anywhere along the line, you just pull the little ding, ding, and they'll just let you out anywhere to just go hike. So Eric and Don and I did that and we spent the afternoon hiking basically with, with this sort of unobstructed view of the mountain. And it was just amazing. And at one point, I can picture we were up kind of on this slope coming down a meadow and no trees, just we had seen caribou just a few minutes before. And we're walking in view of this. And one of us, I forget who started it, probably me because I'm always singing, started singing, when I look down from lofty mountain, grandeur. grandeur. And 
that was it. We were, just, we were looking at lofty mountain. I mean, if anything is lofty mountain grandeur, it's that. Well, Luke 2, where are we going with all this? All right, well, Luke 2, we are finally approaching the lofty mountain grandeur of God's salvation story. I mean, this is it. This is the moment that Genesis 3 was about. Here comes the snake crusher, right? The one born of uh, the woman's seed who would eventually crush Satan and crush his head. This is the moment that, as we've been in Genesis, this is the moment that was promised to Abraham where through you, Abraham, I will bless all the nations of the world through one from your line. This is the heir of Abraham. This is the, the king that would sit on David's throne like the hymn we sang this morning who would gather all the nations to him and one day before him, every knee would then bow down. Here comes the one that John the Baptist is going to say, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals because even though he was born after me, he was before I was. And here he comes in Luke 2, which Sidney just read, and you're thinking, here comes the, the lofty mountain grandeur, and it's not very... Uh, it's not very blow you away, right? It's not very amazing. It's in this humble couple at night uh, in the only space that they could find where animals are kept and the baby's laid in a food trough. Doesn't seem very spectacular. But I think that's why the angels are here. I think that's why God sends angels to these shepherds out during this night to make sure that the shepherds and then Mary and Joseph and then us as we read this account don't miss that God's glory is in the manger. Doesn't look like it, but it's there. In fact, as we've been in Genesis, we should be more prepared for this, right? That often God's glory and his plan doesn't look the way we would expect it coming, right? Baby born to an old woman who was barren or a virgin conceiving and bearing a child. So here he comes, he's born, laid in a manger, and the glory of God is going to be revealed. I want us to see it. So I want us to focus in here on verses 8 through 20. This is the, the shepherds and the angels appearing to them. And there's two parts. There's an announcement. And then there's the responses. And Luke records, what did the shepherds do uh, in light of all that they'd seen and heard? And what did Mary and Joseph do in light of shepherds showing up and angel announcements? And, and then what did everyone else who began hearing about this do with the news? So let's take the announcement and then responses. So announcement, verse 8. Two parts to the announcement. We get one angel first, and he's got the good news, and then all heaven breaks loose with a multitude of angels praising and rejoicing over the news. So first here's the news, and look at who gets it. Verse 8. Shepherds. Shepherds get to be the first responders to the birth of the Messiah. In the same region... There were shepherds who were out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And the shepherds get to hear this good news first. I think shepherds get a bad rap. I, I didn't know this. A couple of years ago, or a few years ago, we were preaching through Luke at Grace, and Daryl Bach has a great commentary. It's fat. You know it must be good, right? 
not necessarily, but two volumes. And in it, for the first time I'd ever heard, he made the case, he says, I think shepherds have gotten a bad rap at Christmas for a long time. And I want to set it straight. Usually shepherds get described as they're sort of despicable, unsavory. They're like lumped in with the tax collectors and people that everyone in Israel hated and didn't trust. And, and, and Daryl Bach comes along, he says, you know what? I think they've kind of gotten a bad rap. First of all, he says, it's not until about the 5th century that we read people bad-mouthing shepherds and getting these sort of unsavory picture of shepherds. But then, this is more convincing, he says, think through the Bible, how shepherds and shepherd imagery is often portrayed and what it's portraying. By and large, shepherds are, are a pretty good image, right? Uh, Moses was a shepherd. Abraham was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. King David. In fact, it points back to David's shepherding years to describe those as when he was a young guy risking his life to kill lions and bears to protect his sheep, right? David writes Psalm 23 and said, thinks, shepherd, that's a great image for um, a God of covenant love and faithfulness who feeds and leads and protects and comes behind and before and, and brings goodness and mercy to the lives of his dear sheep all the days of their life. It's a pretty positive image. Even in the Old Testament, we get some bad shepherd imagery, but that's only when the, Isra uh, the leaders in Israel are being despicable shepherds and they're actually failing to lead God's people the way God himself leads his people. Then we get Jesus, and Jesus comes, and he tells stories like, like the lost sheep. Think of the shepherd in the lost sheep parable, right? What's this shepherd like? He doesn't count one sheep as an acceptable loss, but he leaves the 99, and he goes out on a rescue mission to find and bring back the one and bring it back into the fold. Jesus himself even says, I am the good shepherd. So, I don't think the point of God making this announcement is that God's making this announcement to low lives, although that would be good news <laughs> because we are all low lives when it comes to the sin in our hearts. But I think the point here is more that God makes this announcement to the lowly, everyday people. Here's these, these men out in the field at night, awake, watching over their flock in the way that God watches over his people, doing their job while everyone sleeps. And God's announcement that he says is good news for all people is made to these everyday people, these, these shepherds out in the field. This is good news for everybody, not just the elite, not just the special, not just the upper class, but for everybody. Good news of verse 11, great joy. And look what the joy is. This is what makes this news so good. The joy that a Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord. Those three words are worth thinking about as they, as they all fit together. There is someone today, shepherds, that has been born this very night. He's a Savior. Not just that, he's the Christ. And this Savior Christ is the Lord himself. First of all, Savior, I want us to think the word deliverer. A deliverer has been born. All through the Old Testament, 
through the history of Israel, God at times had to send deliverers. His people would wander and God would allow them to, to be put under oppression or other enemy nations to come in and take over. And then they would cry out to God and God would save, send saviors with a lowercase s, men and women at times, judges through the book of Judges or Moses when they're back in Egypt to go and deliver God's people out from the hand of enemies. And it happened again and again through the history of God's people but here, this deliverer, this savior with a capital S, isn't here to rescue us from those sorts of enemies, is he? It's already been told to us, to Mary and Joseph, you are to name this baby Jesus because he will save people from their sins. This deliverer has to come um, to liberate you from the enemy of sin. I love that hymn we sang, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. It's a longer story than I want to go into right now, but actually that hymn was not originally written as an Advent hymn, although later on, I think Protestants came along and said, you know what, that hymn really beautifully ex expresses what happens in the incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh, more specifically in the arrival of Jesus. When we sing Let All Mortal Flesh at Christmas with a manger on stage in front of us, it invites us to think about the arrival of the Christ, our Savior, as a baby in these terms. Listen to this. Verse 1. Let all mortal flesh keep silence and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly-minded, for with blessing in his hand, Christ, our God, to earth descendeth our full homage to demand, our full reverence and worship to demand. Look at verse 3. Again, picturing here the manger and the baby lying in the manger. Rank on rank, the host of heaven spreads its vanguard on the way. What's a vanguard? What part of the army is the vanguard? The front, right? I always picture either Braveheart or Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe film at this scene. You've seen the scene. There's a big ridge line, and it's just soldiers and horses and swords and archers all the way along the line looking down at the field of battle. That's the vanguard, right? They're ready to run in when the king yells, charge. And this hymn, we're imagining that as Jesus descends, it's King Jesus that is about to lead the host of heaven against the gates of hell. Rank on rank, the host of heaven spreads its vanguard on the way as the light of lights descendeth from the realms of endless day that the powers of hell may vanish as the darkness clears away. That's a unique advent hymn. King Jesus is coming in to lead the charge against the gates of hell and as another hymn says, to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. Tidings of comfort and joy. King Jesus has come to save us from Satan's power. You stop and think, at the end of the day, what is Satan's power over us? What gives Satan power over you and me? It's what the Savior's come to save us from, our sin. Our sin gives Satan power. Think of the two things the Bible says again and again. Here's what Satan does. Here's how Satan comes after men and women created in God's image to turn them from God and to ruin them and lead them to death. He comes accusing and he comes tempting. 
accusing us of guilt. You're not worthy of God. God. God would never have someone like you. How dare you even think? And then he comes tempting us, luring us away from God one way or the other. And, and Jesus has come here to, uh, to loosen Satan's grip that his, his tempting has on our hearts because we, we love sin. That's why it's power over us, right? Satan tempts us because our hearts are already bent away from God and towards sin, and that's what gives him his power. And his accusing power comes because if, if you're like me, I know my sin. I know the things I'm ashamed of. I know those things that when I imagine a holy God and standing before him, the things that make me say there's no way that could ever happen. And Satan knows them too. And Jesus has come to deliver us from the guilt of our sin so that Satan's accusations are empty and he comes to deliver us from the grip of sin by breaking the bond that's, that sin has over our hearts by making us new. A savior has been born. That's the great joy that this good news is about. But it's not just any savior. It's not just another really great man or woman, a really godly person. But this savior is the Christ. So uh, savior, I want you to think deliverer. Christ, I want you to think promised one. Not just one more deliverer in a long line of deliverers, but the deliverer, the one who comes with a guarantee, the one that God says, when he comes, it'll happen. Delivery will come. It's a priest greater than Moses. It's a king greater than David and a prophet greater than Elijah. Not just greater in uh, degree, but in kind. Because this Savior who is Christ is also the Lord himself. Think sovereign authority, God. This baby is God. This baby is the everlasting Father and the Lord of the universe. I'm not alone. Kip Dockerman, after the first service, told me he thought the same thing, but he didn't share it. But I thought of Aladdin. There's a scene in Disney's Aladdin when the genie, voiced by Robin Williams, is describing himself as phenomenal cosmic power. Itty bitty living space. Right? Talk about phenomenal cosmic power, itty-bitty living space. King of kings, yet born of Mary. And Lord of lords in human vesture, in body and blood. And then the last verse, listen to what, what this, the person who wrote this hymn is doing for us. At his feet, Jesus' feet, the baby's feet. The six-winged seraph, cherubim with sleepless eye, veil their faces to the presence, and with ceaseless voice they cry, Alleluia, 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 Lord Most High. Where are we supposed to think when we sing that hymn? Isaiah 6. Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah gets a vision from God, just a peek at the raw, unfiltered, full holy presence and glory of God Almighty. And in that vision, it's not even the real thing, these angels are crying and covering their faces and yelling, holy, 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 and the foundations and the thresholds of the temple in this vision of a throne and God sitting on it shake and just the vision causes Isaiah to fall to his face and say, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord of glory. Now, we're supposed to think, bring all that image and import that here and say, imagine that going on at the foot of the manger over this baby. 
This baby born is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. God has come to deliver us with a capital D from sin and exceeding all expectations. He's shown up in the flesh. That's the story of Christmas. And these shepherds get the personal invitation to see him first. You know that that's special when you get to see the baby first, right? You know you're on the inside circle. I love when people here at Grace, I'm like, I'm like listening to the police scanner of when they're going to have their baby. I want to know as soon as I hear the news, I want to get to St. Jude or whatever it is. I want the privilege of the first Instagram photo. I might not have gotten the first one, but I got one of the first ones with Henry Randall. It came up on my newsfeed in Facebook this last week, me holding the baby right there and, and one of the first ones to see. Imagine if Instagram was around back then, the shepherds are all there hashtagging like, <laughs> check it out, man, you know. Anyway, they get the first sight of God in flesh appearing. What a privilege. Verse 12, the angels say, go, I want you to go see. And here's how you'll find him. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Here's a question. Which part of that sentence is the unexpected part? A manger, right? If he's been born to you, obviously he's going to be in swaddling cloth. But what is that? Wait, what? In a manger. The Savior who is Christ the Lord is sleeping in an animal feeding trough? That's where they'll find him, asleep on the hay. I think the significance of the birth of Jesus in, these, in this humble place, in this lowly, dirty place, it's a hint of his battle plan all along. The Savior's battle plan to save us from sin, the way he's going to lead his, his vanguard against the powers of hell that they may vanish as the darkness clears away, is seen in his arrival here, in his humble arrival. It's not going to happen with an army. It's not going to happen with soldiers. It's not going to happen with fanfare and fighting. It's going to happen in weakness. Like Ray Ortland Jr. says, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. Born in weakness, appearing in the most unworthy but very appropriate manner given the way he's going to save us. Because all along, God has intended to show his sovereign power to save by saving us not with strength, but in weakness and sacrifice and laying down his life in, sh in, in shameful, uh, what looks to be shameful, but is in fact glory. That's been his plan all along. You know the Christmas song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day? same poet who wrote that wrote this uh, little poem called New Heaven, New War. And in it, he's trying to capture this idea. This little babe, so few days old, has come to rifle Satan's fold. In other words, Satan's fold, he's got us all over here, penned in here. We're sort of in bondage to sin and, and in despair. And he's come in to pillage it, to rifle through it and, and take us out. All hell doth at his presence shake Though he himself, the baby, for cold do shake. For in this weak, unarmed wise or unarmed way, the gates of hell he will surprise. I love that. Jesus comes to save us in weakness. 
And it doesn't just start in weakness at the manger. It's the trajectory of his entire earthly life culminating in his death on the cross. Jesus will stoop much lower than the manger. Jesus' story, earthly life, is not rags to riches. It's rags to rags. It's swaddling cloth to burial cloth and buried in a tomb that's not even his own. As Daryl Bach puts it, born in an animal room, dies with robbers. Those are the bookends of Jesus' earthly life. And it culminates with this great act of condescending love where he dies a publicly shameful death in our place, agonizing by enduring the separation from God that our sin deserves. And the angel is reminding us, even here at the manger, who it is that's stooping so low. It's a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And lest we think how pitiful the baby lying, you know, in in dirty hay in a manger, that's not how the angels view it, is it? Because look at the scene. Once this one angel tells the shepherds this news that you'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger, all heaven breaks loose with a multitude of angels praising, it doesn't say singing, although they might have been singing, but loudly saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. You'll find the Savior Christ in a manger, glory to God in the highest. That's a contrast. Because God's glory shines brightly in his, in his condescension. You know, what should strike us here is that the scene that the, sh- the shepherds saw was an extraordinary spectacle, right? I mean, imagine being out in the dark in the night. I'm sure they were stunned. It says, they said, do not fear when the angels showed up. All of a sudden, burst of light and thousands, legions of angels praising, filling up the skies or filling up the, the hillside. I mean, that is a sight you would never forget. But the point of all that spectacle is pointing to the manger, It's like all the thousands of praising angels are saying, you think this is glorious? Go look in the manger. Because God's glory is displayed in his condescension. Because it's in his stepping down and humbling himself and doing what is unworthy seemingly of God, it shows the depth of his mercy and grace and compassion and what sort of love this is that the father would send his son for us. We might see God's glory, uh, the glory of his love and mercy and compassion most clearly when Jesus is stooping the lowest and the angels say glory to God in the highest. So Jesus comes and says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And the angels are saying, glory to God in the highest. As he's praying the night he's going to be betrayed and he's weeping and looking for company and his disciples fall asleep and he's there alone sweating bullets and blood, the angels are saying, glory to God in the highest when he's betrayed by Judas, when he's denied by Peter, when he's struck in the mouth by the chief priests as if he's a liar and blasphemer, the angels in heaven are saying, glory to God in the highest. As he's spit upon and mocked and beaten and hung and taunted and then laid in in a grave, the angels would be saying, glory to God in the highest. That's where we see the glory of the love of God so clearly in his willingness to step down and be low for us. Lofty mountain grandeur is seen in stepping low. That's how this works. That's the gospel. 
So here's a hard question. What about when God wants to display his glorious power through our weakness and our cost of following him and our sacrifice that he calls us to take up ours and follow him? The incarnation, the manger, and the life of Jesus should transform our notions of how God wants to display his power and his glory. We might think it's in one way, and he's saying, no, I want to display it in this way. And it's often in weakness. Jesus told Paul, after refusing to remove some weakness that Paul begged him to remove, he said, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. My power is made perfect in weakness. Could it be that we pray to God, show me your glory and power in the circumstances of my life, and he's saying, I am. You're just not looking in the right place. Where you're weak and dependent and I show up, that's where you see my glory, in your weakness. It makes me think of the words that tend to dominate my daily prayer. Things like, make it quick, Lord. Lord, would you just make this happen smoothly today, Lord? Lord, would you just make this easy? God, would you make me strong so that I might? Whatever. Or, God, would you keep me healthy right now so that I might? And if those are the words that we go to and primarily pray when we pray, then I think that it shows that our assumption is God's power is made perfect in our strength, not through our weakness. We're following a Savior whose glory was displayed through weakness, weakness and folly and a costly sacrifice, but unwavering trust in God through all of it who now is a sympathetic high priest, gives us day-to-day, minute-by-minute access to his throne for mercy and grace to help us in time of need as we follow him. God, help us. Welcome weakness and sacrifice as opportunities to see his grace and glory and not despise them. So that's the first half of the angels' praises. Glory to God in the highest over what... God is about to do, stooping so low. But second, they say, peace on earth among those with whom he's pleased. Praise God, Jesus came to make war on Satan, but he came to make peace with us. He didn't come to make war with us the first time. He came after our enemy, and he came for us to make peace and to reconcile us, to bring us back to God. But you can't just throw out the phrase, peace among those with whom he is well pleased or among those with whom he is pleased. This peace comes at God's terms. And his terms are, you could never earn back peace with me, but I know one who can, my son. He has pleased me at every step all the way to his last breath when he yelled, it is finished. And he went in the grave having pleased me completely. And he paid in full for the the, the wrath I have toward you and your sin. He drank the cup to its, its end. That's what he meant when he said it is finished. And the terms now of receiving peace with God by God being pleased with Jesus in your place is you just receive the gift. John 1, 12 says to all who received him, to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. We acknowledge that we can't earn it. We we acknowledge that only Jesus has earned it and we receive it by faith in him. If you've never done that, I beg you this morning to prepare him room like we sang and let the king of glory enter in to your life. 
to cover your sin, forgive your sin, and to begin lead, leading your life as Lord. So that's the huge announcement. That's why all the great joy for all people. Let's look at the responses just briefly. Number one, the shepherds in verse 15. They only get a glimpse of the arrival of a Savior who is Christ the Lord. They just see the baby and then they move on. Maybe that's the last time they ever see Jesus. But based on just that picture, their response, I think, is an example of what does it mean to receive Jesus? First of all, they believe what they're told. Verse 15 and 16, everything that's told them about this baby, they believe it. You can tell because they drop everything and they go in haste to find the baby. There's no skepticism or suspicion. They run in belief of this good news to find the baby just as God had said. Then when they get there, verse 17, they, they tell what they believe. They tell Mary and Joseph all that had been told to them about this child. I find that so interesting. I'm sure that it came up while they were talking to Mary and Joseph. There were thousands of angels and all this loud noise. But verse 17, the only thing it says here is they made known to Mary and Joseph the saying that had been told them concerning the child. That's the focus. Ma'am, your baby is the Savior, Christ the Lord. That's what, they were to- that, that's what we were told. That's why we ran here. That's why we're out of breath. That's why the intrusion. And they don't just leave it at that. Verse 20, they rejoice. They leave glorifying and praising God for all they'd heard and seen as it had been told them. When we truly receive Jesus as our Savior, we don't just trust in him that he's taken our place, but that trust and then the freedom that we, we believe as, is now ours through Jesus brings joy to the heart and affection and adoration for the Jesus who is our Savior. And they leave glorifying and praising God for all they'd seen and heard. I, I pray that that's us. I pray that we leave here today and we go out into Christmas Eve and Christmas Day festivity with our family and friends and neighbors with that sort of joy that comes out our mouths and makes us bold. How about Mary and Joseph's response? Look at verse 19 and 21. Two things. Mary treasures up and ponders these things in her heart. I don't think the idea is just that Mary had a really good memory and she never forgot that night. But all these events, she chewed on these things and thought and rolled these thoughts over and over again, holding this baby this defenseless baby, and yet these things that have been spoken about the baby, trying to reconcile them both and saying, how could this be? Isn't this amazing? The incarnation is a brain buster. That's why Kip preaching last week, he said, we should never get tired of telling the story over and over again because we can never wrap our minds fully around it. That's why we take a month of Advent to just ponder what has God done in taking on flesh to die for our sins and to to bring us back to himself we ought to treasure up and ponder what God has done for us and take it, take it with us into our life and live with it in our minds. This is what God has done for us. Isn't it amazing? And I don't want to overlook verse 21, that part of their response is they obey a simple command, name him Jesus, because he'll save his people from their sins. And they don't go rogue and name him some trendy name. They just name him Jesus. They say, God said our baby is going to save his people from their sin. We'll name him Jesus. And, and that's the way faith leads to obedience. That's the way trusting God and obedience always works. God says something to us, whether it's a promise he makes 
that doesn't seem certain to us or seems doubtful or he tells us truth about ourselves, declares something about us that we don't feel or he, he draws a line and says, over there, that is not abundant life. Living this way, even though it might cost you, this is abundant life. And he speaks in one of these ways, and we take him at his word, and we say, it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't seem like it to me, but I'm trusting your word, and I'm going to f- act accordingly. Obedience, as it, when it comes down to it, is, is really simply acting on faith in what God has said in one way or another. Maybe you're struggling this morning to take God at his word in some way right now, and that might be worth taking time to talk to him about here in a minute. But the last thing I want to get here, verse 18, is the all who heard it. All who heard it, what the shepherds left talking about, the whole story, they wondered at what the shepherds told them. And this wondered is not the sort of wonder of, oh, I believe it, isn't this amazing? It's the sort of wonder when you feel like, wait, what? This doesn't compute. This doesn't make sense. It's the sort of hearing the shepherds say, wait, God became a man and he's born, but he's lying in a food trough and angels told you this? What? Luke uses the word a lot in his gospel. It's the word when Zechariah said, name him John, and everyone in the family said, what? It says they wondered, same word. This doesn't make any sense. No one in your family's named John. When Peter found Jesus' empty burial clothes in the tomb, same word, he went home marveling at what happened. This makes no sense. I imagine that most of the people the shepherds told didn't just go, wow, what a great story. I believe too, but what are you talking about? And they wondered about it. And I want to ask you this morning, maybe that describes how you've always felt about the Christmas story. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Really? I want to encourage you, if that's at least your feeling, that's better than just writing it off and I don't even listen anymore. If you're still saying, I don't understand how that could be, I want to encourage you to let that wonder follow through to investigation and considering these things for yourself. You're actually here at Grace at a great time to do that. Uh, Next week as we begin uh, 2018, uh, we are going to invite all of us as a church to consider reading through the New Testament in a year much more manageable than the whole Bible in a year, some of you might think. Just the New Testament, one chapter, five days a week, will get us through the whole New Testament in a year. And it'll take us through all four of the Gospels spread out through the year. And in between, these other books of the New Testament that explain what this life and death and resurrection of Jesus is all about and why it matters. What a great time to come back and investigate for yourselves and consider whether or not the things that at first seem too amazing or crazy to be true, in fact, are the good news for you. I invite you to do that. So as we close, I want us to take a minute before we respond with any sort of song of praise and to pray. Lord, what did I need to hear? Maybe the, what you need to do most right now is is bring the circumstances of your life right here to the Lord and and remind yourself and thank God that his his condescending love has covered you now with forgiveness um, and assured uh, security and peace forever and you need to thank him for that. Maybe the Lord this morning is trying to shift your perspective about some aspect of your life that feels weak, that feels hard, that feels scary and, and you need to say, Lord, help me see your power perfected through this. 
Maybe you're just confused and you're not even sure there's a God to pray to this morning. It's okay. You can still pray to him. And you can pray, God, if you are, are there, if you exist and hear my words right now, help me understand who you are. Help me to see clearly. Help me to make sense of these things that I've just heard. Or whatever you need to do, talk to the Lord for a minute and I'll close and then we'll sing. God, I think of Paul saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. And Lord, forgive us for ways that we could be ashamed of the gospel, ashamed of Jesus and timid in our lives. Lord, I pray this morning among many things that this passage would have reminded us of what good news of great joy that we have now tasted in uh, through Jesus, such a way that we wouldn't be ashamed of the way you made yourself low but would be eager to tell people about it. Lord, I pray this morning in all the ways that we need to draw near your throne of grace because, Jesus, you've made a way that we do that confidently, knowing that we're welcome there and knowing that our prayers are heard by a, a Savior who is sympathetic because you know, even greater than we do, weakness and temptation and struggle. And Lord, I pray that you would fill us with Christmas joy, real Christmas joy, not just over you know, good food and gifts and, and warmth and family and music, but uh, everlasting living hope that invades our present circumstances. And we leave here um, not able to keep inside of us what you've done for us. And we ask all this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.